by talking about a story from the Reformation. It's kind of on theme, and it's a good one. King Edward VI ascended to the throne of England at the young age of nine. And with his pronunciation, the Reformation would begin to flourish all across the British Isles. He was a Protestant king. He was just nine years old. But he would only rule for six years. That's a short time. He died at the age of 15. He was a very sickly child and they couldn't, they wanted to keep him alive because the next in line to succeed him was Mary. Yeah. No, uh, 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 Mary Tudor, sorry, yeah. But there was a Mary Stuart. Um, but she was, he was succeeded by a Catholic, not a Protestant. And we know her, Queen Mary, as Bloody Mary. For good reason. She ascended to the throne and the whole of England was thrown into one of the worst periods of persecutions that it has ever experienced in the history of the island. She was one of the most ruthless monarchs in all of English history. Before her, her father, King Henry VIII, was a particularly brutal king. He had a reputation for being bloodthirsty. Well, until Mary came along. She far surpassed her father's brutal reign she burned at the stake at least 280 Protestant pastors and church leaders, as well as thousands of others by either firing squad or beheading. She infamously dragged Hugh Latimer, the Bishop of Worcester, and Nicholas Ridley, the, Brit uh, the Bishop of Westminster, before a Catholic tribunal, where they were both tried for heresy against the Catholic Church and sentenced to be burned at the stake. And each of these men were responsible for bringing the message of the gospel back to the people of England and leading very fruitful ministries, teaching and preaching the word of God. Naturally, they were her enemies. And as they approached the stake to be burned before an onlooking crowd of Catholic fanatics and jeerers, Hugh Latimer would say this, Play the man, Master Ridley. We shall this day light such a candle in England as I trust shall never be put out. Whoa, what words? These are men who had no fear of godless men and women. They were not troubled by their suffering, nor discouraged by the way that England was seemingly headed. Instead, they knew that the suffering they were about to endure on that stake was going to produce a weight of glory in England. That it was going to light a candle that by God's grace would never be put out. And their heroic deaths sparked a renewed vigor all across England, so that when Bloody Mary died, the whole nation was ready to accept the gospel. We too recognize on Reformation weekend the shape of gospel ministry. See, the kingdom of God advances in a particular way. He's suffering church. It's a church that is courageous, a church that is bold and dauntless. These things are the only things that strike terror into the dark spiritual forces of this world and the corrupt and tyrannical princes and princesses of this age. And Peter is writing to a church who is in the midst of harsh persecution at the hands of the Jews. You'll remember this, right? They're having a hard time. He's writing to a church full of men and women, some of them married to unbelievers, some of them getting a hard time from their spouses because they are now Christians. Some slaves became Christians and they had harsh and cruel masters. There were citizens who were under the thumb of tyrannical government and like Latimer and Ridley, the churches of Asia Minor, their candles shall never be put out. Their suffering was meaningful and it produced something. And I really want to bring this out in the passage today. 
I don't want you to be scared of suffering. I want you to see suffering as an opportunity for God to work in every aspect of your life. My first point that I want to share with you guys is this. Blessed are the zealous. Let's get into it, verse 13. Now who is there to harm you if you are zealous for what is good? But even if you should suffer for righteousness' sake, you will be blessed. Have no fear of them, nor be troubled. Now, one of the key areas for reformation we need here out in the Western church is this thing called antinomianism. You remember I preached a sermon ages ago about Christ and the law, and I kind of attacked this idea of antinomianism, but I will refresh your belief. It's this belief that the law of God is bad, and that any attempt to change people's lives and to draw them into obedience to Christ's commands and His law is legalism, even if it is done with the gospel in mind, even if it is done in faith, and even if it is done as part of what sanctification is. They say, no, don't change people's lives. Don't tell them what to do. It's legalism. And the only thing that should be emphasized by Christians, according to them, is just the grace of God. And this is what you might call cheap grace. Grace that produces nothing, grace that costs nothing, and grace ultimately that is worth nothing. None of the apostles teach anything even remotely close to antinomianism. And yet, it finds prevalence all around the church. Now, people who practice antinomianism or teach antinomianism will probably reject it and say, oh, we don't do that, we don't do that at all. But by their actions, they definitely live like that. See, the, God, the apostles, here's what they believed about the gospel. They believed that the gospel did something to you, that it produced something within you. It produced a living faith. It produced fruit. It produced things that people could point to and say, wow, that person has been changed. That person has been transformed. It produces something the apostles call good works. And as Christians, we often recoil from that phrase, especially works, right? We're not saved by works. We're saved by grace. We're saved by faith. We're not saved by our works. Amen. We are not saved by our works. But have a listen to Titus 2. I'm going to read verses 11 to 14. See how grace and work interplay with each other. Starting from verse 11. For the grace of God has appeared, bringing salvation for all people. Yeah, good stuff. A lot of people don't keep going to 12 though, do they? What does the gospel do? It is training us to renounce ungodliness and worldly passions and to live self-controlled, upright and godly lives in the present age, waiting for our blessed hope, the appearing of the glory of our great God and Saviour, Jesus Christ, who gave himself for us. And what did he accomplish in the giving of himself? It says here, to redeem us from all lawlessness. There's that word, law. And to purify for himself a people for his own possession, who are zealous. Zealous for what? Good works. If your gospel doesn't sound like that, then your gospel is not the one preached by the apostles, neither the one preached by Jesus. We should always remember that when Christ purchased and redeemed a people for himself, he actually redeemed them. He actually did something to them, right? He actually transformed them. You can taste them. They are different. They speak differently. They act differently. They behave differently. And look at the end of verse 14. He says, He gave Himself for us to redeem us from all lawlessness. And not only to turn us away from evil, but also to purify for Himself a people of His own possession who are zealous for good works. 
And the reason I want to highlight this passage is both Paul and Peter use this same word. Zelotes, which sounds a lot like zealous, doesn't it? That's exactly where we get the word from. We are zealous. Zealous for good works. What does that mean? Well, zeal is passionate. It's enthusiastic. It's fervent. It's eager. It's aflame. It's excited. It's driven. It's motivated. You can tell when there's zeal and you can tell when there is no zeal. You can look at a man. You can say, that man, he's not zealous. I don't even know what he cares about. I don't even know what he stands for or what he believes in or what he's convicted about. And then you see a Christian, you say, they are zealous. Why? Because they love Jesus. They love his word and they are transformed by it. This is the marker of a Christian. And we know the stench of a church that is the opposite. The Bible refers to it as a a lukewarm church. We don't really like lukewarm things. You guys ever had a really hot summer's day? It's getting up into the 40s. You go, you want to get a nice cold glass of water and you get it from the tap and it's warm. It's like the most unrefreshing thing you could possibly want in that time. This is what Jesus speaks to a church about in Revelation 3. He's speaking to a church that's passive, unmotivated, apathetic, lackluster. The shocking thing is lukewarm churches make Jesus sick to his stomach. He writes to the Laodicean church, he says this, I know your works. Here's his his, uh, investigation, he's seen something, this is his conclusion. Here's what he says about the Laodicean church. You are neither hot nor cold. Would that you were either hot or cold. So because you are lukewarm and neither hot nor cold, I will spit you out of my mouth. The Greek literally says, I will vomit you out of my mouth. If lukewarm churches make Jesus sick, well, it ought to make us feel a little queasy too, shouldn't it? Peter and Paul both assume that the blood of Jesus produces good works. And if no fruit shows up on the branch, well, we find that Jesus will remove that branch and cast that branch into the fire. If it doesn't glorify God with fruit, it will glorify Him in the fire. And so what are these good works? What is the fruit that we ought to bear? Now, I'm not going to come here today and slam you guys and say, oh, here you go, you guys are lukewarm, lackluster, all this stuff, or bring it up and make you feel really bad about yourself and then say, go out and do stuff. And you're thinking, where do I even start? What am I expected to do? And how do I know if the stuff that I am doing is the actual stuff that God wants me to do? Am I busying myself with useless things? Am I pursuing things that God doesn't really care about Fortunately for us, the apostles don't leave you in ambiguity. They don't leave you wondering what you're supposed to do. Peter has devoted a significant amount of time developing these very things. And what are they? Well, he spends a lot of time on marriages. He spends a lot of time on households. He spends a lot of time on our business dealings and our relationships to authority and our love for the church and our desire to preach the gospel and our love for enemies and outsiders. If you're zealous for good works, in context with what we're reading here, you're actually zealous to suffer. See, our good works doesn't depend on whether or not we're being treated well, does it? Because we know our magistrates, they don't treat us very well. At least they didn't treat them very well when Peter wrote it. Our employers, think about the relationship between slave and master. Our spouses, especially when one of them is unbelieving and the chaos that that brings. The church community, when we're like the Corinthian church, at each other's throats constantly. But, oh, we do not like suffering at the hands of our enemies. 
The church is one that is zealous for good works, that we even willingly undergo suffering for the sake of righteousness. That we say, that's going to cost me if I do that. If I obey God here, it's going to cost me. It's going to hurt me. It's going to be hard to do. It's going to bring a lot of stuff that I just don't want to have to deal with. And what do you do in that moment? Are you hot or cold? Or are you lukewarm? Do you try to have it both ways? Can I obey Lord, the Lord without any suffering? But all of us who try to live a godly life in Christ Jesus will be persecuted. When you try to live a righteous life, guess what? It will cost you. It will cost you. And Peter's writing to a church that loves the church in such a way that no suffering can stand in their way. When Latimer and Ridley went to the stake, they only had one thing to do to avoid such a brutal death. I don't know about you, but getting burnt at the stake does not sound like a good deal. Sounds like one of the worst ways to go. Guess what? They could get out of it. They didn't have to do very much. They just had to do what's called recant. They just had to say, we deny the gospel message. We accept Roman Catholic teaching. And if they did that, they would avoid such an inglorious death. And instead, they chose to suffer for righteousness sake. They went to that stake choosing it. I mean, they obviously would have gotten out of it if they could get out of it in any other way, but they weren't going to recant. Was their death meaningless? I'll ask you this. Was it meaningless? Was their death just a useless waste of life? Was it a poor decision? No, quite the contrary. It lit a candle and it produced something that Peter's been developing, subsequent glories. You remember that phrase? I've been harping on about it a lot, haven't I? But we need to know this. Your suffering produces something. It accomplishes something. It goes somewhere. The whole point that Peter is making is that we ought to let our lights shine brightly to all, that our way of life may be attractive and made known to all. What we want them to see is when they look at our marriages, they see healthy marriages. When they look at us as workers, they see earnest, hard workers. What can they see except men and women generous with their time and money? What can they say when they see our children that are not only obedient, but joyful and happy? When they persecute us, everyone will see that they are persecuting the righteous. And when Latimer and Ridley, when people looked at them, they did not see enemies of the state. They saw righteous men dying to a tyrannical monarch. And Peter says here, but even if you should suffer for righteousness sake, he's saying it's not given just because you are acting in a righteous way. It doesn't mean you're always going to suffer for it. But if you should, which can happen, you will be blessed. And it really goes back to what Peter said last week. God sees us. He knows what's happening. He hears our cry and he will surely act on our behalf. Go back to last week, the end of last week's passage, verse 12. It says, For the eyes of the Lord are on the righteous, and his ears are open to their prayer. Believe it. He does hear you. He does know. And those who know this, they prepare their hearts and minds for action. And they're going to be ready from when they're called on to stand firm. Because they know that God sees. And he has not abandoned them. It leads me to my second point. Blessed are the prepared. Let's keep reading. Verse 15. But in your hearts, honor Christ the Lord as holy. 
always being prepared to make a defense to anyone who asks you for a reason for the hope that is in you. Yet do it with gentleness and respect, having a good conscience, so that when you are slandered, those who revile your good behavior in Christ may be put to shame. For it is better to suffer for doing good, if that should be God's will, than for doing evil. Now this is the kind of um, the go-to passage for apologists, people who defend the faith. They always come to this passage and they, they, they say it's really important for us to have a prepared defense when people attack the faith, when they attack Christianity. Uh, and that's how uh, I've always viewed it. But now I'm kind of viewing it a little differently, having preached through First Peter. It's somewhat true. Uh, when a lot of people think of this passage and they quote this passage, what they're thinking of is kind of different topics. They're thinking of like creation versus evolution, or theism versus atheism, or Christianity versus Islam, or Trinity versus Unitarianism. But in context, it's actually about none of those things. Neither is it saying that you have some sort of glow or your cheerfulness and you kind of got a hop in your step and people think, why are you so hopeful? Why are you looking so good? You're really happy. Tell me about it. Tell me what's got you so happy. It can happen. I'm not saying that it can't happen, but that's not what Peter's saying here. It's actually not as groundbreaking or intellectually rigorous or only for those theological eggheads. It's not even for the joyful. This passage is, yes, I know, still about suffering. It's still about suffering. See, there's something more compelling than your intellectual arguments, although they are important. They are important to have arguments for the faith. It's more important than even your joy. It's absolutely necessary to have joy as a Christian. I'm not tarnishing joy. But Peter is saying the thing that's going to prompt questions from people is not any of those. The thing that's going to have the world scratching their heads is your suffering. The fact that you have willingly chosen to undergo this, that you have willingly accepted this thing. So when your friends come and tell you, oh, your husband, he's such, he's such an idiot. I can't believe he's not doing these things. I can't believe he's so lazy. I can't believe he's so unmotivated. I can't believe he doesn't love you the way that you ought to be loved. You should just leave him. Or at least go have fun or go do this and go do that. You know, we get that kind of stuff out in the world, don't we? And you say, no, I love my husband and I respect him. And I know he's not doing what he's been called to, but I will stay in this marriage and I will fight for him. And people think, what on earth? Why are you doing that? Why would you do that? There's a reason to give them the hope you have in Christ. That is a perfect opportunity to speak up. The compelling reason that a contentious wife may lower her guard and refrain from criticism is not her husband's cleverness or his mirth, but his consistent love, even when he's been wronged. When the magistrate tries to stamp out the church, and to his shock, he sees the church not only thriving, but growing, what does he do? What questions begin to be asked? Who are you people? What on earth is happening here? Why are you behaving like this? Why are you doing this? Who willingly gets put to death? Who willingly suffers through a bad marriage? Who willingly goes through all these horrible things? Why are you staying with your employer when they belittle you and are cruel to you? And yet that Christian employer is shocked to find them honoring him and working hard still. He will want to know what madness has overcome them. Never underestimate the power of your testimony when you willingly endure hardship, suffering and persecution and you repay evil that comes your way with good. Never under underestimate the powerful witness that has. It will get through to people far more than your intellectual flourishes or your happy, smiley attitude. 
They will know that Christ means everything to you because they can see it. You're going through it. You're experiencing it. You have to give an answer to your unbelieving spouse, your employer, your magistrate, your neighbor, and if necessary, even your fellow brother and sister in Christ. You need to be able to answer questions like this. You need to say, I suffer because Christ taught me to love my enemies, even when they persecute me. Because he loved me so much that he died for me while I was his enemy. That's a good answer. It's a good answer for the hope that you have. You can say something like this. I love my wife because Christ loved the church in this way. And his bride was not pure or undefiled when he found her, and yet his love redeemed her. Or you can say, I submit to my unbelieving husband because Christ submitted himself to unrighteous men when God the Father willed it. Or you can say, I, enjoy, I endured suffering at the hands of my government because Christ himself suffered at the hands of the Romans and the Jews, although he did nothing wrong, and he did it for me. These are the kinds of answers that we have to be able to say. That when we are cut, we bleed Jesus. That we have the words of Jesus on our mouth, that we know all the teachings of the New Testament. We can, we can speak the words of Jesus because they're so close to our hearts. They're so clear in our minds because we are just saturated in Him. We love Him. His words matter to us. We're in the Gospels. We're memorizing them. And at any moment, we can give an answer because of why we do all these things and we live like we do. And what is our answer? It is Jesus. We give our defense and we bring it back to Him. Trust me, that will Peter's telling us right now that will hold sway. That will do something. It will produce something. It's not rather just giving a defense for what the Bible says. It's also being able to say, and here, why, here is why it's good. Here is why it is beautiful. Here is why it is true. It requires a little bit of preparation. It requires meditation. It requires a depth of understanding. But it's not just for the theological eggheads and the intellectual guys out there. I really want to just make you guys know that it's, it's for the ordinary person. Anyone can pick up Jesus and read him. Anyone can, can uh, just have it in their minds constantly. You don't need to be a Bible college student. You don't need to be a pastor. Peter qualifies it at the end. He says, yet do it with gentleness and respect. It does get hard. When you're being derided and mocked, people are making fun of you. It's not a good experience. Most of us spend all our time trying to avoid that situation ever happening. But when it does happen, we don't like it. And often we can respond in kind, can't we? Mock them back. Make sure we give them as good as they've given us. If they speak harshly to us, Peter says, you have to respond with gentleness. You kind of want to meet their harshness, don't you? You kind of want to speak to them in the same way they're speaking to you. You want to meet their energy. You don't want to let them even get any above you. You don't want them to win, do you? You don't want them to, uh, to steamroll you. You don't want them to... Um, and sometimes it could be, well, I want to save them. I want them to see Jesus. I want them to know Jesus. And we can often respond with disrespect and belittling people. But when they do this to us, we don't respond in kind. Peter makes it very clear. We don't repay evil for evil. We repay their evil with good. We treat them with honor, even though it really grates on us because we are putting that side of us to death. I want you to notice something. You're not in control of the responses of people. When they ask you, why are you doing this? And you give an answer, 
you're thinking, oh, this is the moment, this is the moment, my suffering, it's going to produce all this weight of glory, it's, it's finally happened. And then they mock you for your answer. It's like, oh, all of a sudden your tires are deflated and it's really hard to kind of deal with. Even the most loving answer, done truthfully, will still be a stench of death to those who are perishing. Always remember this. The reason we answer in those ways is not because we possess some level of skill or rhetorical flourish. It's not because we, oh, Peter's saying, oh, if I add this gentleness and respect to my answer, oh, they're going to become a Christian now. No, he's not saying it for their benefit as much as he's saying it for your benefit so that you don't get sucked into it, that you don't sin alongside them. He's not saying that necessarily that they're going to come to faith, although it is far better to do it that way than the alternative. We aren't like these spineless Christians who dither and equivocate on the news. We speak directly in love. We speak clearly, but respectfully. We speak lovingly, knowing that the truth is what sets men free, not eloquent speech. So many pastors, a lot that I know and a lot that are in my kind of realm, they think that if they speak eloquently enough and skillfully enough, people are going to like them. They come to a topic like homosexuality. If I just say it in the right words, then people will think, oh, he's a great guy. You know, he disagrees with it. And then they're shocked when they find out that people still hate him. Didn't you see how cleverly I answered it? Didn't you see how skillfully and eloquently and carefully and gently I answered it? Why are you still against me? It's not about eloquent speech. It's not what Paul's, uh, Peter's saying here. Have a listen to what Paul says. Here's Paul's ministry, 1 Corinthians second, uh, 2, 1 to 5. Have a listen to how he talks about his ministry. He says, And I, when I came to you, brothers, did not come proclaiming to you the testimony of God with lofty speech or wisdom. For I decided to know nothing among you except Jesus Christ and Him crucified. And I was with you in weakness, and in fear and much trembling, and my speech and my message were not implausible words of wisdom, but in demonstration of the Spirit and of power, so that your faith might not rest in the wisdom of men, but in the power of God. We need men like this, who proclaim truthfully, not in their eloquence and their wisdom, but clearly, directly, but in love. See, for Paul, when he preached to people, everything was brought back to Christ. He said he decided to know nothing else among them. Everything came back to Christ crucified. Everything he talked about, it, it found its origin in the gospel message. It wasn't clever words. He says it's not lofty speech or intellectual reasoning that transformed these people. What transformed them? It was the power of God that transformed them. It's through the Holy Spirit that causes the truth of the gospel to be beautiful to you. It's the same power that will cause your proclamation of the gospel to be beautiful to others. So brothers and sisters, are you weak? Are you fearful? Are you unskilled in speech? Then you're a perfect candidate to give defense for the hope that you have. Rely not in yourself. Rely on God's might. Do not rely on your own wisdom, but rely on the inspiration of the Holy Spirit. Resolve here today that on the day that we celebrate the Reformation to be a suffering reformer. If you desire reformation in your marriage, become a suffering reformer. If you desire reformation in your family, then become a suffering reformer. If you desire a reformation in Brankston, then become a suffering reformer. And you will be among good company You'll be among men like Martin Luther and John Calvin and Latimer and Ridley and Thomas Cranmer and I could just go on, John Knox, I'll stop there. For Christ, 
when he absorbed not just the wrath of sinful men, but also the wrath of God, what did his suffering produce? Did it kind of just end there? Satan won. He killed Jesus. Job's done. God has lost the battle. Mankind is now thrown into dejection and misery and despair. There is no salvation. No, this is what happened. Romans 5, 8 to 9. But God shows his love for us in that while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. Since therefore we have now been justified by his blood, much more shall we be saved by him from the wrath of God. There is a reason we remember Queen Mary Tudor as Bloody Mary. She will forever be remembered as a tyrant and a persecutor of God's church because she reviled the good behavior of Christians and therefore is put to shame. But the shame she endures in this world, as we remember her cruelty, is but a fraction of the shame she's experiencing before God in judgment. There is a reason we remember Latimer and Ridley, because they suffered evil for righteousness' sake. But here's why we will always remember Christ. Latimer and Ridley died for their Savior who loved them and gave his life for them. Christ died for you while you were still a sinner, while you were his enemies, while you were hostile to him. And he suffered the worst wrongs, though he had done no evil. He died the worst death, although he had done nothing to deserve it. And he saved us by a sheer act of grace. And he suffered. And you cannot get past that suffering. It produced something. It absorbed the wrath of God on our behalf while we were still sinners. And if Christ did this for us, what trivial thing it is to endure suffering for righteousness sake, when we only face a mere infinitesimally small amount compared to the suffering of Christ that he willingly underwent for his enemies. See, I, I don't want this sermon to, to guilt you. And if you're feeling guilty right now, I've, it's, not, it's not what I'm trying to get to you. I want it to empower you. I want it to make you go, you know what, this suffering is worth it. You know what, Jesus is worth it you know what, it will actually do something. And I believe it will do something. And I believe that this may cost me to do this thing, but I will do it because I trust in my suffering Savior. And so brothers and sisters, today resolve, as I said earlier, to be a suffering reformer. Let's pray. Father, how beautiful are the feet that bear good news. And how beautiful are those feet that came to us when we were still sinners and hostile and proclaimed the message of truth. That your grace was made known to us. That your love was, that shone clear through the darkness. And we saw you for who you are. And we believed and we trusted and we put our faith in you. And your suffering produced within us righteousness. And Father, we thank you that you have purified us and redeemed us from all lawlessness. And you have caused us to be a people for your own possession, zealous for good works. And Father, we have gone through many seasons, some of earnest love for you and, and a desire for righteousness, and others where we have really been like the church at Laodicea, and we have been lackluster and lukewarm. But Father, you gave that church an opportunity to repent, and you give the same opportunity to all your faithful people. Father, would we change our, our attitude towards suffering? 
Would we earnestly desire to do good things, knowing that sometimes it will cost us, that we will do what is right, that we would love your people, and that we would love all things that you have called us to. But Father, we thank you first and foremost for the gospel message of Jesus. I pray, Lord, that this would be in the heart of all the men and women that are here today. That they would resolve to know you, to suffer for you, to die for you, knowing that they will be raised from the dead in glory. We thank you, Lord, in Jesus' name. Amen.